0: Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like where are you from, there was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 13, Unfinished Business, May, 1984, Back Home to Lil. As if to prove that Lil and I were truly connected for life, all transgressions aside, she too had a baby that year a baby boy born three months after mine, and Gary was the father. Lil desperately wanted her son to be raised in a healthy environment, and the only place that that existed in her world was at my apartment. So she and her new baby boy moved in with me. Space and time never knew so much about you. After a mournful period of convalescence, at my recently acquired adopted parents' home, I had finally found the strength to get back out into the world all on my own. It was a strange sensation to fill the, the rock and robin, light and airy, bibbity bop of my drug free life, which soared effervescently under the assumption that I had made the right decision to give my child away. But did, what, did I? I? I was beginning to notice that when I was not under the influence of narcotics, I was a rather responsible, hard-working person who may well have been a great and loving mother. And now the contradiction between yesterday and today gnawed at me. But either way, not being weighed down by the constant need to buy, sell, or trade my life in order to stick a needle in my arm had rendered my life sweet and silly again, and Robert Lill and I would spend our days debating whether or not Prince was gay and what country, big country, was actually from. People always said Arkansas was 15 years behind the times, which is why the word enabler, associated with the self-help movement of our time had not yet entered the vocabulary of my friendship with Lil and Gary. So basically it was just a matter of time. Gary was a drug that Lil couldn't resist and Lil was a drug that I couldn't resist. But I did try to resist Gary's request to cook meth in our home because I was doing my damnedest to keep me and Lil on the straight and narrow and to create the wholesome family life that we deserved, desired, and desperately needed. I could feel my thriving soul producing new shoots of growth and I wanted my life to be free and pure, two words which had long since been eradicated from my vocabulary. After days of badgering and a little nudge from Lil, I consented. Why? Because love can be dirty and manipulative. And I loved Lil and Gary. My unfinished business with the dark side. In the vocabulary of drugs, the word meth was unfamiliar to me especially since it had several different street names. Gary called it Crank, and other people referred to it as Crystal or Ice. It was all too complicated, and I didn't seem to have an attraction towards learning about it, so it was news to me that you could cook meth in your house, on your stove top, alongside your pork chops and mashed potatoes. Before the smell of meth cranked up in our apartment, on a sticky humid night, when Lil and Gary's baby was elsewhere, it was pretty fascinating and impressive to watch the process. (music) Seeming like a scientific genius with his milk crate full of various liquids, none familiar, Gary mixed several chemicals together, which included squeezing the liquid out of Benadryl nose inhalers. As he stirred the concoction, the liquid reduced into a thin white dust, coating the glass pie pan in which it was cooking. Within minutes, the most revolting smell infiltrated the house, and this is when I started to regret my decision. The chemical fumes, compounded by the thick, wet, moleculed air, were so disgusting and invasive, I thought my skin would rot from the outside in. There was no respite or relief from this loud, diabolical smell. Even with the wet t-shirt Gary instructed me to put over my nose and mouth. My body rebelled instantly into fight or flight, with my heart racing and my head pounding, and I began to feel both nauseated and high. I begged Gary to make it go away before it reached the neighbors, but that was not an option. The corroding aroma was absorbed by the walls and furnishings lingering on for weeks after the initial cook. The repulsive smell did, however, redeem itself once I shot it up. The minute it hit my bloodstream, I was lifted 10 feet off the ground. The world around me, which had moments before appeared washed out and muddled, became a stark and brilliantly lit reality. My vision focused with a concentrated clarity, and even though it was the middle of the night, I needed sunglasses because the exposure was so intense. My brain buzzed like an electrical power plant and my body revved up to high gear. The explosion of senses was all too much, and I ran to the bathroom to throw up. Just one shot of that smelly mess, and I was up for days. The meth and the cooking of the meth sent my companion Robert packing. He hated it, and he hated Lil and Gary. With arms akimbo, head lowered and cocked to one side, trying to hide his contempt and disappointment, he softly, yet firmly, tried to persuade me away from the dark side. Even though the toxic amphetamine had me talking nonstop, the magic of words had escaped me, and I couldn't convince Robert that I was okay. It was only temporary, because I didn't really like the stuff. Robert had no patience for waiting around to see if this were really true, or if I would come back down to the creative, pragmatic world of comfort and support that we had constructed for each other. He was no longer a believer in me unless I walked away from Lil and Gary. It was pivotal this moment. I knew it was the proverbial fork in the road, the tug of war between right and wrong, good and bad. Robert was my innocence and I was his reinforcement at a time when he needed it most. But my selfish drug blood killed that for both of us. So Robert went back to Louisiana to be with his family and I carried the guilt of never knowing if he did indeed finally jump through that astral door. Creative or just criminal? It doesn't take much of an imagination to detect where the road of drugs will lead. And it doesn't really matter whose bright idea it was, because although industrious, my little cabal was proving to be rather dim-witted when it truly mattered. But we had a plan. One hell of a plan. Our grand scheme was initiated due to our financial needs, because although Lil and I both worked full-time jobs, the combined salaries of minimum wage was not enough to provide for her son and to pay for the resurrection of our drug habit. So we took a part-time job where the hours suited our lifestyle. Day one, which actually occurred long after midnight, was quite simple. The three of us drove to the pizza joint where Lil worked. Gary threw a brick through the front door window and Lil walked in and got the money bag. With an urgent nonchalance, she quietly closed the car door and we drove back into the night, trembling from head to toe without saying a word as if any utterance would draw attention to the crime that we had just committed. Our first stop, after the deed was done, was to the corner. Our second, to the 24-hour grocery store, where we extravagantly filled three grocery carts with a poor man's bounty, bought several cartons of cigarettes, and returned home absolutely bowled over by the overstuffed refrigerator and a night's worth of drugs. When all was said and done, about five minutes of nerve-wracking work Filled the refrigerator with the nutritious types of food that a loving mother desires for her child and fledgling family. Lil went back to work the next day as if nothing had ever happened, and nothing did, which left us confident to try again. Someone is watching your house again. We excelled at our new job and became a mini-crime wave in our neighborhood. Nothing is private when they slip in. Lil and I were well suited to this type of employment. We intrinsically knew what to do. It came easy, as if we had found our calling. B&E artists. Nothing is sacred to them that break in. Because we were the age of selfish, exacerbated exacerbated by the selfishness of addiction, we didn't ruminate about how our actions rippled into the lives of our victims. In order to do the job successfully, there must be compartmentalization. Us and the nameless, faceless them. And I never felt a thing until Beans and Grains and Things a small hippie store located right on the corner of Oak Street where Sue Gorton and I first lived together in Little Rock. It couldn't have been easier to break into. We barely needed a crowbar, just a screwdriver to pry open the old, dilapidated wooden window. And once in, when the smell of beans and grains and things hit my olfactory senses, waves of guilt punched me in the gut and I fell to the ground, where I needed to be anyway because this storefront was located on a busy thoroughfare. Crawling around on the concrete floor, the soft, colorful nightlights exposed the stark contrast between my early age ethos taught to me by owners such as these and the unscrupulous student that I had become. I was unnerved by the sense that Gorton was watching, peeking through that astral door, shaking his head with the same disappointment shared by my long gone and sorely missed friend, Robert. Gorton should have been there, but he wasn't, and I had a job to do. So I went through the filing cabinet, grabbed the money bag, mostly full of checks, and a brown leather jacket, hanging warmly off a metal folding chair. We were out quicker than the time it took us to get in and my usual nerves were less about fear and more about disdain. What was I becoming? We got pulled over by the police that night after Lil ran a red light. We thought for certain we were done for, our life of crime over. We assumed it was obvious, dressed from head to toe in solid black, with the tools of our trade shiny and evident and gleaming in the back seat of her car. But the cop was lackadaisically unaware and didn't even give us a ticket. He just smiled and told us to be careful and sent us on our way. Lil and I took this as a sign that we were on the right career path. Breaking not for not for the fun. My affinity for crystal meth was very short-lived. The smell, the taste, and the sense that you were washing your bloodstream with liquid Drano just to stay up for days on end, contemplating the myriad of projects scattered around your house and life in various states of incomplete, was really not worth it. It was a crude drug with strange associations, truckers, rednecks, and creepy crimes. Gary, who was for Lil and I, a walking encyclopedia, informed us that it was truckers who concocted the cooking of meth when amphetamines became tightly regulated by the federal government. They needed speed to stay up for long hours on the road, and I appreciated the practicality, but out of vanity did not want to become the face of a meth head, which, in presentation, is a mouth full of rotting teeth, open wounds, and a distinctive, unsexy contorting of uncontrollable muscles in an overly exaggerated way. Unfortunately, my love drug, my drug of choice, T's and blues, were becoming harder and harder to find. The corner, which had always been a reliable source, had been taken over by crackheads and the vibe down there was violent and unpredictable. I never recognized any of the dealers and I had to get ripped off several times before I gave up trying. It was a sad state of affairs because the corner had always been an easy place to score, very simple, much like a drive-through window, in and out in seconds but now I had to work harder and go deeper into the projects to find sets. It was never easy to ascertain who was who and what was what, and you surely didn't want to offend someone by asking if he or she was selling, never mind the quick judgment call to assess honesty and integrity. In this new reality, I was nothing more than an actor playing a role. And the success of my performance would determine if I got out of the projects dead or alive.